I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground Broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. As the Global South prepares for August's BRICS Summit, tomorrow marks 76 years since the I in BRICS, India, won its independence from Britain. The now most populous country in the world would regain sovereignty, but also be partitioned 76 years ago today in violence that would kill, wound or displace tens of millions. India has come a long way since then, now the third largest economy by PPP in the top five, along with Russia, China and the USA. But now India is on the rise. What threats are facing it? Joining me now from its capital, New Delhi, is one of India's most famous politicians and intellectuals, Indian National Congress MP and former Under Secretary General of the United Nations, Dr. Shashi Tharoor. Thank you so much, uh, Shashi, for coming back on. Commiserations, you didn't become president of the Congress Party. I thought you were going to clinch that by the time uh, you were next on going underground. I should actually just well, start. I had a crack at it. I'm afraid it was a. Uh... A fairly resounding defeat. Uh, I now have the distinction of having been the most successful loser in the history of Congress party elections, which I suppose is 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 a kind of modest consolation one has to pack away at the at the bottom of one's of one's. Well, I'm, uh, sure, one's. I'm sure it'll happen one day. Before we get to independence, I better just quickly ask you because uh, the world is looking at Niger. What with Biden sending Victoria Newland down to. Uh, Niamey uh, and uh, a lot of people talking about Niger because it's a source of uranium for nuclear weapons, for nuclear power, 25% going to the EU. Uh, the RS Malhotra, the former Indian, Indian envoy to Niger, just said as far as India's relations with Niger are concerned, the overall relationship is not going to be damaged by that. Much more diplomatic response than, uh, say, Paris or Washington talking about full-scale invasion then. Yes, I, th I think you're probably, I think Mr. Malhotra is probably right that uh, India's uh, basic relationship uh, with, uh, with Niger and indeed with most countries in Africa uh, has tended to be free of its, uh, its own democratic credentials and convictions and has tended by and large to, to avoid the kind of sort of moralizing that Western countries' relations with African countries have had to do, partially because of the focus on national interest and partially because India, I think, has realized that sometimes different standards would need to be applied in situations in which um, countries uh, have to govern themselves as best they can, and what the, what's best they can may not necessarily match the standards that you'd like to set the world. Well, well, some are, some are saying the revolution. Some are saying the revolutionary government has more democratic credentials than the uh, U.S. Uh, NATO-backed one. Uh, that preceded it. So uh, perhaps... well, it's difficult to, to be sure exactly what their credentials are just yet. I think we'll have to see as they settle down. Uh, there is also, as you know, the uh, alleged uh, demands for Wagner, the, the mercenary group to be involved in, and the Wagner fighters are coming in, how that takes the direction of the government and, and how they behave uh, will also remain to be seen. Um, we've seen... Well, there's example, a big CIA base in Niger. They've put half a billion dollars worth into the into that area so clearly this is a site of proxy war and i and given it 76 years since independence and the brutal partition india wants to fight it seems to me on this geopolitical stage uh, with nuclear pakistan it's fighting with nuclear china half the time and this is while all the global south including niger burkina faso including brazil including the southeast asia they're all talking about this new world India's fighting with Pakistan, with China. I think you've been critical with uh, working with Russia. I mean, don't you want Russian energy? Is the new Indian? Is there an Indian political class completely unaware of this new world order that's breaking out? Well, look. Let me say very bluntly that on on these matters, when you say India's fighting, I think you're being a little unjust because what we've got is adversaries who have, in 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 both cases, initiated 
uh, actions that have put us in the obligation to defend ourselves. But having said that, nobody, even not even our adversaries in these situations, is contemplating anything by way of a nuclear engagement. So we're looking at what have been skirmishes with the Chinese, minor skirmishes on the frontier, though one of them was serious enough for us to lose 20 soldiers in one episode with the Chinese. And with the Pakistani side, it's not been directly confrontation with the Pakistani army, but rather with militants and terrorists sent across from that side. So uh, we, we are a long way short of nuclear conflict. If that's what you're concerned about, certainly everyone uh, with, with half a brain in their heads would be concerned about the prospect of nuclear war, but it's not exactly imminent, nor do I see it likely as becoming imminent. What I will say, however, is that every country has a responsibility to look after its national security. And we're not exactly living in a safe neighborhood. We've got belligerents on both sides, two sides of us, and we need to be suitably armed and suitably careful. Yeah, you see, even the way you said belligerents on both sides sounds like the, the old world, arguably. And what India is doing, Lloyd Austin was there in India on June, uh, June of this year, five-year roadmap to counter China. Rajnath Singh was there talking about US aid, weapons, sales to India, air combat, land mobility, surveillance, intelligence, munitions. Basically, is um, India a bit like the European Union? I mean, the United States wants to fight Russia through Ukraine and can fight China through India. And we've seen what it's done to the European Union because Germany is in recession and uh, many people are talking about Europe's demise. If India continues in this way, uh, is it actually a vassal state on this 76th anniversary? I think everyone Afshin, who's dealt with India knows that no one gets to use India to pursue any other objective but what's, what's in India's interest. I don't think that any Indian government has allowed itself to be used in 76 years since independence and I can assure you that there will be absolutely no tolerance for playing anybody else's game. If the West is selling us arms, it's because that's good business for them. Uh, and of course, it happens to coincide with some of their geostrategic objectives. And if we're buying those arms, it's because we need them, not because we are willing to play anybody else's game. The truth that is that we, we are in, in, in a difficult situation. Our principal arms supplier is itself running short of weaponry because of its war in Ukraine. Uh, we have to diversify Russia. our sources. And we've turned to the US, we've turned to France, we've turned to Israel. Um, and, and this is not surprising. Uh, we'll also turn, I'm sure, to other countries that used to be in the Soviet orbit and that might have spare parts for some of the Russian weaponry we still use. Obviously, so, the, obviously the poor of India, and maybe in your constituency in Kerala, will be saying you could spend the money more cleverly than uh, buying military arms. But I should also say the US State Department's Matthew Miller, Blinken's man at, in Washington, said, you know, the US regularly raises human rights concerns with India. We've done that in the past with India, and we'll do that in the future. Just, just in the past few weeks. This is what the United States thinks of India. It's a human rights-violating country, while simultaneously trying to make cash out of India by selling them uh, the General Atomics uh, UAVs, $2 billion, I think you just spent on it. Look, there are issues in India that we in the opposition parties have been raising consistently, but we don't go on asking Western countries to do our work for us. We will raise issues as part of our responsible role as an opposition in a democracy, and we will challenge our government. But, uh, but I think, by and large, it's up to Indians to solve their own problems, whether in relation to human rights or anything else economic policy, political approaches, foreign policy. These are matters that are legitimate subjects for debate within the Indian context. But we are, we are not particularly on either side of the political aisle welcoming 
of foreign interference in these issues. Well, you've been critical of Modi, saying he's too close to Russia. And isn't the point here that Joseph Borrell, the EU, uh, the beleaguered, arguably, European Union foreign minister, said, Europe is a garden, the rest of the world is a jungle. I mean, it's obvious that your ex-colonial rulers, those, those uh, countries in Europe, because Portugal was there, in uh, India, I mean, they, they uh, see India as a cash cow now, as it economically has risen in the past uh, decades. And uh, while navigating this, Modi is trying to navigate it, and you're there saying we should be closer to Washington, as the Congress no, Party I, does. You're, simply, you're simplifying my position dramatically. First of all, let me stress in reaction to that comment that gardens may be more comfortable, but jungles are more interesting. So I think I'm happy to be where, where people find there are interesting challenges facing them, number one. Number two, I did not say that uh, India is too close to Russia. I fully understand and was part of that closeness for a very long time. I simply said that on the Ukraine matter, that India had failed, especially initially, to uphold principles that it has historically stood by for seven decades, including these sovereignty of states, the inviolability of borders, and the inadmissibility of the use of force to settle international disputes. So I, it's, it's, it's a I didn't hear you say position. one word about that when, uh, when after the uh, US coup in uh, Kiev, they were shelling and killing 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine. I didn't see you make one speech in the Congress saying uh, that uh, Ukrainians were killing 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine. Why now are you re reciting to me Washington talking points? Albeit you were at the UN as an assistant so, secretary no, actually, general. One involves an inter a member state of the United Nations violating the sovereignty of another. The other involves a government of a recognized member state of the UN uh, attacking a portion of what is seen internationally as its own territory. There is a difference. And uh, I think on these matters, countries like India can ill afford uh, to surrender their principles because that surrender will and could be used against us uh, in, in in parts of our own country, uh, such as, for example, Kashmir. So I, I, I'm very consistent in my approach that we need to stand by the principles that we've always, always upheld for the last seven decades. It's nothing against um, Russia as a, as a friend. It's against Russia's specific action. It's like good people can do wrong things. This was a wrong thing, and we had to point it out. But I will say that India has to fight its own battles, and India has to stand up for its own security interests. And every responsible Indian citizen will support the governments of India, whichever party they may be from, as long as they take responsible actions to profess to protect national security. We will be critical where the governments are seen as insufficiently muscular, as we find has been the case on the China border. Well, obviously, Russia sees that uh, battle in Europe as existential and uh, as a proportion of uh, population at the UN General Assembly. The majority of humanity didn't vote for the uh, uh, resolution uh, condemning Russia for its operations in in Ukraine. And what you just said, arguably, doesn't fit in as well as uh, it might with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization idea of a new security world, does it, really? I mean, it's, it's more of the old world again. You're talking about India is there, while uh, the rest of the global south are all talking about a new security okay. architecture, harking back perhaps to, to Bandung and the non-aligned movement. Well, uh, India, as you know, has, has in some ways 
been playing it uh, all sides. It's chaired the SEO, uh, chairing the G20, um, active in the BRICS. Uh, it has it has in many ways tried to keep all its channels of communication and of good relations open. And I think that in some ways it's been a, a tough act to pull off, which India has so far managed to do without, without antagonizing anybody else. It's heading into the BRICS summit in South Africa in a spirit very much of, of full participation. Um, there are important issues before BRICS, including the possibility of its expansion, which fits into what you're talking about, the emergence of new configurations. While at the same time, it has actually reaffirmed its role in the G20 during its chairmanship. So I think I think you have to give credit to India for not behaving in a way that can let it be typecast on one side or the other of what you're seeing as a global divide. Shashi Tharoor, I'll stop you there. More from the Indian National Congress MP and former Indian External Affairs Minister after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with one of India's most famous politicians and intellectuals, Indian National Congress MP, Dr. Shashi Tharoor. Shashi, you were talking about uh, BRICS uh, in a few days' time at the, at the end of the month uh, in South Africa. Um, do you think uh, you were right to criticize BRICS for platitudes rather than action? We had Lord O'Neill, former Goldman Sachs boss, who coined the term BRIC on the show, and he said economies have to be careful about how they say dispose of dollar debt and NATO nation, you know, European debt as, as the rise of BRICS happens. Uh, you, you don't want to see the acceleration of the dumping of debt in this new BRICS world order of de-dollarization? Well, we don't really know how far that's going to go. And I think there's been some conversation about this, but nothing uh, taking anything remotely like a formal shape. Uh, there are individual governments that are taking individual actions, and uh, I think governments are going to be guided by what they see as being in their own interest. Uh, there are extremely interesting issues going on in the, in the BRICS context. First of all, it's going to be very widely attended. I gather that invitations to attend the summit are not just for the, the five leaders, the five member countries, but to 67 leaders across uh, Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the Caribbean. And on top of that, uh, 20 dignitaries, including the Secretary General of the United Nations, the Chairperson of the African Union, and the President of the New Development Bank have all been invited. So uh, we are looking at a, at a much larger sort of context for BRICS. Business leaders are going to be attending, and there's going to be open discussion of something that some members have been pursuing more avidly than others, and that is expansion. Um, by adding adding new members. Now, I know there's some skepticism by some, there's more willingness for others. Um, but I mean, all of this suggests that uh, BRICS is, is poised for an evolution that might indeed make it more relevant rather than less, because platitudes um, certainly have, have hobbled an organization like the Commonwealth uh, that the British set up. <laughs> BRICS can't afford to go that way. It has to find uh, a certain clear relevance uh, coming out of this this process i'm not sure, i'm not sure that BRICS leaders would like it uh, to be compared to the to the quasi imperial commonwealth but i mean we've we use the word platitudes and that's what it reminded me of <laughs> <laughs> we've we've had lula on this uh, show uh, brazil obviously taking a big lead the b russia massively involved in this new de-dollarization uh, world china very much involved south africa there was a recent conference in st petersburg talking about the closeness between uh, african nations away from the imf and world bank 
again and again. Isn't it I that's the, it's the India that's the problem here because it has problems with China. You're talking about the fact that you should basically be condemning Russia over Ukraine. And uh, I'm not sure what, uh, what you want to say about South Africa and Brazil. Is India not, this, not a bit of a problem here? Now, India has actually got very good relations with both South Africa and Brazil. And indeed, there is a separate organization uh, of the three of them called IBSA, India, Brazil, South Africa, which has actually got some of its own development projects going on in the respective countries. Uh, South Africa is the smallest uh, uh, BRICS country, as it were, both in terms of population and perhaps in terms of the size of the economy. Um, but they were the first beneficiaries of expansion when BRIC became BRICS. And I would argue that now uh, with a group that accounts for more than 40% of the world population and about 26% of the global economy, uh, there is the emergence of what everyone sees as an alternative forum for countries um, to develop new diplomatic channels which indeed are free of the traditional dominant Western powers. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've been seeing and we've been hearing a lot of talk of the decline uh, into increasing irrelevance, as some would suggest, of the non-aligned movement. BRICS could be the nucleus of something that's, that, that, in a sense, is a successor to the non-aligned movement, and not as large and as unwieldy as non-alignment, but perhaps capable of more focused engagement. Um, I would say that, uh, that, that as long as countries like Brazil and India uh, have the kinds of views they have and are seen as having the, the credibility and the clout they have, um, uh, no one is going to accuse BRICS of just being a cat's paw to Russian and Chinese interests. But uh, we'll have to wait and see, I think, uh, how all these things go, what comes out of the, the BRICS summit. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions, questions still in the air. Global geopolitics are very important, but there will be discussions on trade. There'll be discussions on uh, China's major leap on infrastructure development in many of the BRICS countries. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to have to see some, some pretty solid uh, progress coming out of this, uh, this meeting, including on the question of expansion, because there are 23 pending applications uh, for new BRICS members. And I think that, again, is something that uh, is bound to be of some concern um, to, to some members. And Brazil has been openly skeptical, for example, of enlargement. India has been surprisingly a little more welcoming. Um, and, uh, and we know that... Uh, we know that Russia and China have been quite keen on seeing some new members coming in. Um, China, I think, is, is, is obviously the main driver uh, for expansion of BRICS. So I think there's, there's a lot of questions here, a lot of possible trends. We'll have to see how it emerges. Uh, but what, but what unites Brazil? I mean, Lula was obviously imprisoned uh, because of a de facto US-backed coup. He said so on this show. Uh, we know what Russia thinks of uh, Washington. We know what Brazil thinks of Washington. Uh, we know what uh, China thinks of uh, Washington and the arguable vassal states of Europe. And we know what South Africa thinks. You trust them, don't you? I mean, you and the Congress Party of India seem to trust uh, the United States and European Union countries uh, as, uh, as nations that you're going to do masses of arms deals with and, uh, and tend to side with. What, why is India still... I think you're... You're exaggerating the role that arms plays in all this. It's a useful element, but it's by no, no means dominant. None of these countries uh, is principally, for example, uh, not, for none of these countries is the principal element in the relationship. Well, Lloyd Austin was there, as I said in June, a five-year roadmap for uh, India. For you, I mean, there were zero arms from the United States coming to uh, India in 2008. They're now $20 billion dollars. 
That's right, because they're selling us equipment we believe we need and which, frankly, um, uh, will be more and more indispensable if we have uh, assertive... Why do you think it'll work? Why do you think American arms will work? Because it's clearly being blown to pieces in the Ukrainian battlefront. Well, in fact, as you know, some in the media say exactly the opposite, that it's the Russian arms that uh, have not been a really great advertisement uh, for their weapon supplies. I, I, I'm not a military man. I'm going to stay away from that. But I've seen both both kinds of arguments. Uh, and more, more to the point, it does seem as if Russia's stocks are depleting with each passing day of their war with Ukraine, making them less and less uh, likely to be a reliable supplier of more weaponry and more spares. So I think we certainly need to diversify our sources. I want to stress that India has always tried to preserve its own sense of autonomy by maintaining good relations with all sides and to maintain uh, channels of communication as well as arms sales, as well as trade with all sides. Um, even with China, even after China killed 20 of our soldiers, uh, our trade relationship has actually gone up, which dismays some of us. Uh, but it also points to the fact that this is an increasingly interdependent world when it comes to trade and commerce, and no one can afford to be finicky about who and what it trades with. So all of these things, I have to say to you... Wait, so you're opposed to the US sanctions. I mean, clearly, the United States and NATO countries are not happy with India buying, I think, more uh, energy from Russia than ever before in the past few days. So you're completely for the uh, how they see it as breaking uh, their uh, sanctions. Uh, that you aren't supposed to be trading with Russia? No, I would say that as far as trade with Russia is concerned, it is in India's national interest. But I would argue that one might be overstating how unhappy the Western countries are with this, because, you know, uh, Russian oil goes into the mix of all of India's imported oil, which is then refined in India, and the surplus is sold to the US and the UK anyway. So the, the very countries that have sanctioned Russia are indirectly benefiting from Russian oil once refined, once it's refined in India. Uh, as well as that, you have the fact that the, the, the India buying Russian oil stabilizes world prices, because if not, it would be adding to the number of countries competing for the rest of world's oil, oil supplies. And that would drive prices up at the pump for consumers in America, Britain, and, and the rest of Europe. So if you're looking at the broad picture, I think you would genuinely have to understand that what India is doing is not, in fact, uh, uh, is in, uh, we'll turn it around and say it is, it is in the interests of the West as well as of India, as well, well as of Russia, too, that matter. Yeah, that, that isn't uh, regularly covered on uh, US and European television channels, what you just said there. I must, uh, <laughs> I, mean, not, I, I must ask you about Imran Khan, who was on this show, who clearly detailed Washington's role in. Uh, his overthrow as he saw it. He saw it as a Washington-catalyzed coup. I mean, the closest uh, it's uh, India has come to Washington directly affecting uh, uh, your region and the, and the uh, problems and the geopolitical problems that face India today? No, I, I'm quite sure that India has stayed hands-off on the Pakistan situation. We believe this is for Pakistanis to work out amongst themselves. Uh, we all know that, whereas other countries, you can say that the state has an army. In Pakistan, the army has a state. And no head of government has been able to survive so far in their 76 years of existence if, if, if that head of government has fallen afoul of the army. So in every case, there's been this uneasy coexistence between the civilian leadership and the military. I think for a third of the time, the military has ruled the country directly, and the rest of the time it's ruled the country indirectly by controlling who gets to be prime minister. I don't think we have a dog in this fight, as the expression goes. 
And I certainly would not at all expect any Indian authority, agency, or individual government leader to interfere in the slightest way on Pakistan. Imran Khan was a personal friend of mine before he became prime minister. I'm very happy to count him as one. But uh, but as an Indian, all I can do is sit back and watch and see uh, what happens um, as, as, as the process plays itself out uh, in a neighboring country. I think most Indians want to see a stable Pakistan because instability in Pakistan is bound to spill over one way or the other into our country. Uh, but how that stability is ensured, who by and with whom at the helm, is really not in our hands, nor should it be. And we shall simply watch and wait. Well, uh, Pakistan traditionally always close to China. Do you think then, and I alluded to this in, in part one, that the United States will use India against China over Taiwan? I don't think India is right for being used by anybody ever. I don't think any country has so far in 76 years been You've said that before, but if, if, if the American warships are down there, which side is India going to be on? It's just going to lay off there from well, the South China Sea. Where are the American warships going to be involved in an Indian fight with China? India's problems with China are on the land border. There are no American troops in India, option. Uh, you're talking about a geostrategic, uh, if you like, chess game where people in the back rows uh, of the chessboard are looking at big pictures. But where we are unfortunately engaged uh, eyeball to eyeball with the Chinese is on the snowy wastes of the Himalayas, and it's on the land, and it's got nothing to do with American warships. Okay, but there are American soldiers all around India, it has to be said. Not I mean, just Indian soil, no, sir. No, not, not, on, not on Indian soil, they're around India. If India continues to uh, disobey uh, the, I say the kind of rules being given to European countries as to what to do in terms of foreign policy and how to trade and who to sanction. Uh, I, I don't know whether you believe Biden was behind the Nord Stream uh, bombing. Uh, do you think India will ever come to be threatened uh, in, uh, in bigger ways than just the State Department in the past few days saying your human rights are lousy? Look, I, I don't mean to sound complacent, but I will say that if it ever comes to that, we know how to take care of ourselves. Uh, I am not somebody who worries about who's going to threaten us. At the moment, uh, we are aware of the existing threats, and I've identified a couple of them, uh, and, and, and we hope to defuse them. But we are not going to be making foreign policy out of fear, nor are we going to be making it uh, out, of, out of complacency. We will keep on our toes. We will certainly protect our own security interests, and we will ensure that our strategic autonomy, which we've jealously safeguarded for 76 years, is not diluted by any of our foreign policy decisions. I think that's a, a fair summary of where both the government and the opposition would stand uh, on this line of question. Dr. Shashi Thuro, happy India Day. Thank you. Well, our day is, is tomorrow, the 15th of August, Afshin, but uh, thank you very much in advance. Uh, that's our Independence Day. Thank, thank you. you. That's it for the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you on Saturday.